Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Main Idea Podcast. And now your host, creator of the Ski System and Trainer of the Year nominee, Abe Maynard. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I sit down with Julie Megler. Julie holds a Master's of Science in Nursing and is board certified as a family and psychiatric nurse practitioner. She focuses patient care on achieving psycho-emotional well-being through the support of mental health medications and somatic approaches to therapy. Julie also offers integration of altered states of consciousness and ketamine-assisted therapy. You can find Julie at Sage Integrative Health out of Berkeley, California, which is also available in the show notes below. There were so many themes that we didn't even get to cover on this podcast, and I really look forward to bringing Julie back on in the future because there's so much to cover, so much to learn, and I find this stuff fascinating. So without further ado, the great and knowledgeable Julie Magler. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I've been anxiously awaiting the chance to get to talk to you because I find the work that you do fascinating on so many different levels. Um, so thank you for being here. Forward to this. There's almost too many questions that I want to ask and I want to know about in terms of your respective expertise. Um, but I thought we just kind of jumped into this experience that I came across that you had um, where you're, and you can clear the details on this, but I think that you're reflecting on an ayahuasca experience or you're about to go on one. And you referred to something called shock traumas mm-hmm. and that you were working through shock traumas or with shock traumas. And I found that really interesting theme. What exactly is that? And maybe you can talk a little bit about that experience because I've known a lot of different people who've gone on ayahuasca retreats or, or have been interested, but never someone who understands this stuff from a clinical perspective that can really shed you know, academic light on it, so to speak. And so I'd love to hear about that uh, what you were doing, what that experience was like, and feel free to start anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. I was just actually talking about this in my clinical consultation group with my clinic uh, that I run, Sage Integrative Health, last night. And so I want to preface this with that you can hold this from two different perspectives. In the ayahuasca tradition, so that was when I was down in Peru uh, with the, at the Temple of the Way of Light, they refer to something called a susto. And essentially it's when like the, from their perspective, when the soul leaves the body. So some sort of trauma that occurs where like you kind of get separated from your deeper sense of self because that no longer feels safe. Um, And there's from a more Western clinical perspective that can happen in a whole variety of different types of traumatic events, such as like, inescapable attacks or, you know, wartime where you can't get away from the immediate threat. And there's a way in which you have to like dissociate from yourself for it to be protective. Um, And I think what can happen within the ayahuasca work is that a lot of times people So I can answer this question from a whole variety of ways. I could talk about shock trauma more generally, or I could talk about one of the things that I often actually see within psychedelic work sometimes, which is something that isn't often talked about because everything's being so sensationalized in the media right now that they don't really talk about places where things can possibly go wrong. So maybe I'll put the question back to you and ask, 
yeah which one would be better for me to answer right now can we can we do both (laughs) yeah i mean pick one i I would love to hear either of them and i I have a feeling that the conversation will discover itself as we go along but yeah i would love to unpack both of those hello ladies and gentlemen if you enjoy this podcast and the guests that i have on please support it by checking out my amazing sponsor athletic greens I started taking Athletic Greens because I believe that health starts on the cellular level, and with my weekly output, I need all the support I can get. I always try to maximize my whole food nutrient consumption, and AG1 is the perfect supplement to round out this healthy approach. At the end of the day, quality is of the utmost importance, and I can only stand besides companies that embody the values and attention to detail that I do. And check this out. For every purchase, Athletic Greens donates to organizations helping to get nutritious foods to kids in need including No Kid Hungry here in the United States, and it costs less than $3 a day. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Abe. Again, that's athleticgreens.com A-B-E to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Yeah. So, you know, I can speak maybe to what my personal experience was and what led to what they call the susto, which was about a decade ago or more, I had an ayahuasca experience and they had added a plant to the brew that's a very difficult, complex plant to work with. It's one of the master plants in that tradition. And it's called toe, or it's also more familiarly called the Torah or Bugmancia. And it essentially was a plant that was way beyond my skill set to work with. So, like in terms of intensity or sensation, intensity, sensation, you know, meditation practices, or even having the cosmological framework to understand what I was experiencing, you know. Mm You know, it's one thing to have tried other psychedelics, and another thing when you feel like you're getting a glimpse into the universe and you're like, <laughs> things are a lot more, there's a lot more going on than I realized. Right. <laughs> and I yeah. can't really grok that. Um, and and that, was a, that was a big shock to my system. And it was overwhelming. And it, and it also, the length of it, so it, it kind of almost felt like an inescapable attack and led to PTSD symptoms afterwards because the length of it from the treatment from from the actual experience because it also instead of it being a four to six hour experience it became a 36 hour experience and i was exhausted nightmare yeah luckily i had support in the moment but it clearly led to after that i started developing ptsd like symptoms and panic attacks and um what's it called yeah. Was that was that the fault of the the guide in that situation? It's complicated because technically I consented, but I didn't realize what I was consenting to because I wasn't familiar enough with the plant. So I think um, you know, there's a saying within a lot of medicine communities of like, you know, you're you're given what you can work with and so in retrospect I feel like there is so many ways in which I grew and matured and in having to deal with that in the years that followed and in other ways I feel like you know 
a lot of the more old school practitioners, like if you look at the original forms of psychedelic assisted therapy in like the 60s and 70s, they were pretty high dose experiences. And it was about breaking your ego structure down so that you could surrender and really pass that point. And I think the current narrative is more of trying to take a trauma-informed approach where you don't need to actually blast people into this ego-dissolving experience and that you can actually be a lot more gentle and nurturing for people to kind of um, work with them up to the level that their systems are ready to work with. So, so and, and perhaps that's more of like the clinical road, right, is to box this up into traumatic experiences so that you have something to treat? Mm, you explain that maybe a little bit more in terms of... So if I think of like uh, like electrical acid tests, it's kind of like gonzo out there, like I'm going to take a bunch of acid, I'm going to record my entire experience and document it and present this case to the world of like, hey, this is kind of what we can do with this stuff. This is the, the journeys that you can go on of self-discovery, of loss of ego, of all these things. But how do you really deliver that to a, a general public because of how far out there it is? Mm -hmm. And now, uh, if I'm understanding this right, I may be misunderstanding, there's more of a turn to maybe decrease the dosage and control the experience a little bit more so that you can apply it to more specific things rather than something that might be a little more existential, like the loss of your own ego, which is a individual experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot more people advocating for that in the clinical environment, because you still continue to hear so much about how the ego dissolving transpersonal experience is what you need, or the mystical experience is what's required for there to be healing. And I think there's a lot more advocating for that. Actually, you don't need to have a heroic dose uh, to be able to work really effectively with the psychedelics to help help you heal whatever it may be, whether it's depression or trauma or anxiety. And that there there is a time and place for those more mystical experiences, but it's not necessarily what you need to shoot for all the time. Right. I. I mean, I, I didn't know if I would or would not speak to my experience of, of ever taking psychedelics, but I do remember that the first time was a very profound appreciation mm -hmm. uh, after the fact for everything that is the way it is mm -hmm. um, existence. And in some case, like a, a very personal grounding within that, that I just... I thought it would kind of be goofy uh, and it turned out to be much more surreal and impactful. And that was, you know, I was, that was when I was 17 and it was not in a clinical setting and you're walking through the woods with your friends. But even from that experience, it seems like these are very powerful substances uh, naturally occur in our world and have profound properties on our way of thinking. I'm sure both positive and negative. Um, when you go back to that experience and you talk about the, like the PTSD that formed from it, mm -hmm. how do you like sift through that and get on the other side uh, of like a better understanding of the experience kind of to where you are now? Like, 
you said, when I look back on that experience, I see it as necessary for this, you know, the journey that you've gone on and where you are today. How did you respond to that, the trauma of the experience that you were trying to rid the trauma from your body, if that makes sense? Yeah, totally. You know, the thing that's coming to mind is that I grew up very fortunately in a very lovely family dynamic. Both my parents are physicians and they're immigrants from former Yugoslavia. And that also bred, like I think our culture already breeds a very self-reliant attitude. Mm -hmm. And then you also have two physicians who immigrated and you're raised in that family dynamic and there's some cultural aspects around maybe not talking to your emotional experience a whole lot. And I was the youngest out of three. Uh, and so there's a way in which I was so independent and self-reliant from a very young age, just because that was how I was raised. And I think one of the biggest blessings of what that whole experience taught me was having to really change that mentality from relying on myself to opening myself up to vulnerability and being open to asking others for support and letting go of any judgments that I might have of, oh, I'm being needy or I'm asking for too much or this isn't appropriate and just being like, no, I really trust in myself to discern when this is something that I can support versus when this is something that I'm needing assistance to support. And then that's also come into my clinical work quite a bit in helping support my clients and trying to discover that as well. So... Yeah, that's like a, I go back and forth with this kind of coddling or, or hardening of the individual as, as we grow up or, or we age, because I think there's some um, very clear benefits to that self-reliance, like it, it, perseverance and, and having kind of like a can-do, can-figure-it-out attitude versus uh, being pampered or always having things be told that they'll be fine. And so there's the iron sharpens the sword kind of thought process has benefits, but I did growing up kind of the same way. Like I've always had that mentality. I, I tried to emulate my father who was like a hard worker, a provider. He had those hardened characteristics that growing up I idolized. And it wasn't until much later in my life when I needed like therapy, for example, speaking with a therapist, it's a very vulnerable thing to do because you let down this, wall that you've built your whole life of I'm going to handle it myself. And here I am trying to speak with someone and let them know all those things that are inside. It's very hard to communicate those to somebody. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like with the therapies that you work with is part of it helping people dissolve that barrier? Definitely. I definitely feel like one of the biggest things with medicine work is Two things, one, dissolving that boundary, you know, ideally in a safe setting with a therapist so that people can become more open to being more vulnerable. And then the other big thing, biggest thing, I come from a more somatic therapeutic background. I was trained in somatic experiencing. And I really feel like psychedelics teach people our entire culture from a young age is we teachers, we're being taught to start ignore our bodies essentially. like. Whether it's as simple as like not paying attention to when you're hungry or if you're hot or you're cold or 
oh, I'm anxious. Is there something in my environment that I should be paying attention to? You're constantly being told, no, ignore those signals. So you're relearning, I feel like, when with the use of psychedelics and the therapeutic container to start listening to those messages and trusting them again. And it can take a long time because it's like relearning a new language as an adult, right. which is not the easiest thing to do. How do you choose from the array of available treatments? Um, if someone comes to you, let's say, uh, with a post-traumatic stress syndrome event or let's say some trauma in their personal life from childhood, how do you discern between utilizing, for example, ketamine therapies, psychedelic therapies, or other available therapies to help treat that person based on uh, each one's ability to enact the change that you're looking for? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it's a little complicated right now in terms of what's legal in the clinical setting. So technically mm -hmm. only ketamine is legal in the, in the clinical setting. We are, SAGE is one of the uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD expanded access sites for MAPS. And but we only get five participants that we get to work with that were approved for the FDA. So that's specific to PTSD. Um, and then, you know, there's referrals for people to go abroad if they're wanting to work with psilocybin or, or ayahuasca. And so I just want to kind of name that there's only so much that I can actually refer people to, but I can speak a little bit to the differences in that you know, I had a mentor many years ago who described something like MDMA as more ego building and then the DMT containing molecules like ayahuasca and mushrooms to be more ego dissolving. So when somebody's PTSD symptoms are so active to the point where like you actually need to be resourcing them, not trying to peel back more layers to get to the deeper layers of the root of the trauma quite yet, that... Um, something that's going to be more gentle in that MDMA sort of way is going to be useful. And then when people are resourced enough and they're ready to start digging a bit deeper, that's when working with some of the more kind of DMT containing molecule, molecules can be useful. And then ketamine is kind of in its whole own category because it's neither phenethylamine or tryptamine. But I think it depends on the type of trauma and what's useful. So if we're just speaking about PTSD right now, at least, uh, you know, ketamine's most researched and well-known for treatment-resistant depression and ruminative suicidality. It's been shown to be very effective, but I think there are ways in which it's really useful for PTSD as well. And that's where dosage range really depends because if somebody has, say, dissociative trauma where they're leaving their bodies and that can lead to actually like even though they seem very calm into high energy state and they're actually quite panicky on the inside, ketamine's a dissociative psychedelic. So you don't wanna give them a high dose dissociative experience because then you're gonna be putting them right back into the experience that scares them. But then it doesn't feel safe for them. But if you use a lower dose experience that can actually help people feel quite embodied and help them possibly explore their like movements in their body, maybe do a gentle yoga practice or light massage in ways that otherwise they're, they're often too contracted because they're so hypervigilant on the day-to-day -to, -day to feel like their body can even expand into. That is fascinating. So in the, if we're gonna speak first to 
the non-legal options, it, at least domestically. Um, what you're saying about that's interesting about the MDMA a psychedelic treatment. So in some cases, you would actually take someone who might need to be built up in terms of developing a sense of ego or developing a sense of maybe like worth or, or existence. And then from there, you're saying that that become, can become like a ready state to then progress into other therapies to allow them to go more inward. And in, the, in this case that I'm talking about, they're actually not ready for that at the start because of their current state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you read from some of the more old school psychedelic assisted therapy therapists, the, I think even the Shulgins probably talk about this. Oftentimes the course of treatment is starting with an MDMA session, a couple of MDMA sessions, seeing how somebody responds and then as they feel ready for the experience, moving them into like a mushroom experience. And then helping them to maybe look a little bit more inward in this process. What does it produce at the end in successful cases? Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like that's so complicated. <laughs> it's okay, we got time. <laughs> yeah, I will, and, I, and I just wanna step back with the caveat of two also of like, of course, in all these situations, you have to be assessing for what's like medically appropriate because MDMA has more contraindications associated with it than say, I mean, or um, some of the other medicines. So that's, that's a big factor as well. Um, and then you were kind of saying, what's, what's the hopeful outcome, right? Right. And, oh man, this is where it gets so complex because I, I'll, I'll be really transparent in that like 98% of my work in working with clients and I'm doing ketamine assisted therapy with them. That's what a lot of my clinical practice is right now mm -hmm. is psychoeducation around what's a realistic outcome. For them to hope for personally. Gotcha. Yeah. And so you hear so much about how psychedelics are like 10 years of therapy in just, right. you know, one six to seven hour <laughs> session. And there is an element of truth to that. And that because it can kind of break down some of those barriers, those walls, there's particular insights in self-reflectiveness and awareness that can come to the surface that otherwise would take many years of building a therapeutic relationship before somebody would feel, you know, safe in their psyche for that unconscious material to start to arise. But the place where I don't feel like it's any different and it's really important for people to um, just be educated about is that what you do with that moving forward can take just as much time. You know, it's like you're given the opportunity to have the awareness, but then integrating that into your life and continuing to work with that material with the therapist or a spiritual counselor or otherwise still takes a lot of time. You know, like if you've had a particular way of living your life for 30 years, 40 years, you can, you know, you might be able to chisel a big chunk out of it, but repatterning that isn't going to just happen in a six hour session. So you right. still have to continue to work with it. And then the way I like to explain it to folks also is that like, you know, we're all kind of dealt a hand of cards of like particular patterns for ourselves that we have to work on. And so I wouldn't say it's that the psychedelics get rid of that particular pattern for you. It's just that it helps you track it and be more aware of it because under 
any life circumstances or stressors or whatever it may be, those patterns will re-arise. Um, but psychedelics can help you be more sensitive to them, more gentle with yourself, more aware of what's the support you need to put into place or what you need to do to just be tending to it and day to day, whether that be, you know, exercise or meditation or yoga practices. And so I think the psychedelics help you get the leverage to really be putting those lifestyle changes in place, but you still need to be responsible to those changes for it to actually stay persistent for any real transformation to happen over time. And so with, with these uh, patients that you're working with, do you have like an outpatient structure that you work with them to kind of say, hey, we discovered these tools in your tool belt. Awesome. Let's teach you how to use those. Yeah. So we typically either require people to be in ongoing therapy with somebody at SAGE. So they do typically a minimum of a series of three ketamine sessions with some prep and integration sessions in between each of the ketamine sessions. And then they either continue and do therapy with somebody at SAGE who can help them with that. And then we also at SAGE have some other holistic providers. So if somebody's needing like a dietitian, nutritional support, or want to work with an acupuncturist or massage therapist, that's available too. Or if they don't, um, if they already say have an established relationship with the therapist, then we have them continue that care with their therapist, but then we have them touch back into SAGE every like four to six weeks if they're going to be continuing treatment just so that we can be continuing to just evaluate the process and seeing, you know, how committed they're staying to it. Are there things that need to be adjusted? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, one, I, I appreciate the transparency about the outcomes because when I think about psychedelics or uh, I guess any kind of currently alternative medicine to traditional pharmaceuticals, my, I can only think of my experiences, which in some cases have been truly profound life change, like almost universal changing experiences. Uh, those are not happening from the prescription drug market. So here people are having uh, apparently really impactful experiences, really meaningful experiences that are, that are much different than their current worldly experience day to day. Yet even that really isn't, it doesn't seal the fate of the transformation. You still have to do work on the outside of it. You still have to work alongside a therapist to put these things into play. Yet prescriptions, drugs are just being written for people endlessly on like a, okay, good luck, Julie. Oh, it's not working. Or your statins aren't, you know, helping your cholesterol. Let me just up your dose. Let me just up your dose. Let me just make the dose higher, dose higher. Like that's a problem, right? That's a massive issue. How do you stand, how does something like your practice at stage stand out against this industry to begin to make change there? Because mm -hmm. that's an issue that we face for sure. Totally. I like, you know, kind of using myself as an example again, after I'd had that experience many years ago, I started developing what they call irritable bowel syndrome, maybe even before that, but it definitely worsened after that experience. And I can't tell you the number of gastroenterologists that I went to and endoscopies and various things that I had done. And not a single doctor did like a food journal with me. 
yeah to see if like there was like some obvious irritants to my system it took me like seven years of trial and error on my own right. to kind of figure out like oh these are the main culprits and if i stay away from these things then it, like at least it's tolerable um that's devastating totally is and then and then you're kind of and it's it's hard because the the patient ends up feeling like you know getting labeled as somaticizing and it's just psychosomatic where like yes psychosomatic might be true and there's an element of that but there's a way of which within the medical system you get written off as being crazy and to the right. point of being like oh if, if you're somaticizing there's probably some sort of trauma response and there might be some additional medical stuff that's going on too right so um and how, and how dare you distrust the professional kind of exactly. narrative you know like i i feel like i i won't share her experience but similar my fiance lauren had, had an experience where she basically had to solve something for herself over a two and a half year period seeing multiple physicians multiple specialists where as the as the patient as the person going to try to figure out whatever it is that's wrong whether whether you're suffering from uh, digestive issue, you know, a skin irritation, uh, sleep issue. When it's not being resolved, when you go to the professional for it, that's really frustrating. And the frustration can create more agony around the issue in the first place. So unless you're really <laughs> like hard-headed and dedicated to solving the issue, you're kind of at the mercy of one, yeah, being labeled crazy for even repeatedly saying that the the things aren't working mm -hmm. um and then you're just up against an industry that you don't understand so do you do you see uh a way beyond that like with our current the current way that medicine functions within our society if we stick to kind of western society do you see a pathway out of this yeah, it's interesting. I, I just kind of want to highlight your point of like how hard it is when you are suffering to that level to be constantly trying to advocate for yourself because you're already suffering. Your doc the doctors are telling you everything's fine. And then you need to try to find new doctors, new appointments, and and that can be unless you have the appropriate support structure, you know, so you don't have or super, super solid fiance or family structure to support you behind that, like it can feel impossible. And then you just get completely debilitated. You know, in terms of our system and the way around that, it's complicated because unfortunately it's a place of privilege to be able to look into more alternative treatments right now, even within psychedelic assisted therapy, like most of the fees are out of pocket. And then if you're wanting to get additional support from a more holistic practitioner, whether or not it's, say, an anthropathic doctor or a functional medicine doctor, or I've found Ayurveda to be really helpful for me, so an Ayurvedic practitioner, like, you have to be able to afford to pay out of pocket for that. So right. I do feel that there is a movement within the Western scope of more integrative medicine and more insurance policies trying to, like, allocate a certain amount of money per year to alternative modalities, but really integrating that into our system at this point is not there quite yet. And unfortunately doing enough of the research, like doing FDA trials to um, 
provide clinical success for evidence-based medicine practices so that insurance will reimburse for it is like millions of dollars like yeah. we're seeing with the mdma approval process like maps just raised i think 40 million dollars or something like that just to get them to finish through phase three of the fda process so i am um, i want to have a more positive outlook on it <laughs> but you're a realist <laughs> um I'm a little bit of a realist and um and I do think that there's a way, you know, there are more low fee nonprofit clinics around and, and possibilities out there. So I do have hopes with time. It's, I mean, it's gotta be hard when this is, this is just an opinion. And of course it's going to come off as like, of course you think that, but like, it feels like pharmaceutical industries and the, the healthcare industries and the insurance industries are in bed with each other. And it's just like, uh, I don't feel like a conspiracy theorist saying that because it it's like in your face when you go like, okay, I pay, you know, 400 bucks a month, every month to healthcare mm-hmm. every month. And I go to the dentist and they come in, they, they hook me up to all this crazy equipment that I've never seen before and blah, 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 you know, run through the whole thing. And they're shouting numbers and they're using words you don't understand. Then you get to the end of it and they're like, Hey, you know, based on what we've seen, we really recommend you do this, you know, $1,500 treatment. By the way, it's not covered by your insurance. Mm-hmm. And then they want to prescribe me some medicine that I don't want to take. That's personally not a big fan of prescription medication. I never have been. And I, I was sitting there like, this is just fucked. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, the, I'm the person who's coming for the service who, who is in a world I don't understand now. I don't understand dentistry or maybe you don't understand the mental struggles that you're having or or the psychological issues that you're up against. And so you go to where you hope there are answers and then there's none. And then on top of that, it's like more money. Yeah. But that's like a very deep embedded relationship. And it almost seems like a process like what you have at, at Sage that are seemingly life-changing for the people that are, are doing them and, and going through the process. It's as if they're up waiting for it to be proven successful a million different times to then swoop in and, and bring it to the front of market. Like, is that kind of what's going on at all? Do you feel like you, you're up against like regulation and regulation and regulation, but it's really just piling up until the success is so overwhelming that it has to be taken seriously? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I don't know if this is totally gonna be answering your question, but I do think that the psychedelic space is up against what happened within the the cannabis space as well. Just like, here's an opportunity to break outside of this more capitalistic structure of the various relationships between the medical and pharmaceutical industry. And, um, but then people seeing opportunities to profit significantly over these, you know, breakthrough treatments. And so you're starting to see a lot of venture capital money come into the space. And there's that fear of how can we, you know, minimize the amount of workforce necessary to maximize treatment outcomes when I feel like so much of what psychedelic assisted therapy 
is about having a deeply relational experience with the therapist so that yeah. there can be repair in what it's like to be witnessed with somebody by somebody through your suffering in a time of being vulnerable in a way that's safe. And, and unfortunately, like you can't like break that down to an algorithm and just give somebody, right. you know, there's plenty of organizations out there that are doing mail order ketamine treatment right now. And it's, you know, in my opinion, a little bit terrifying to think about people just sending people home with ketamine and looking at it just from a basic biochemical approach, pharmacological approach of it as an antidepressant instead of seeing how important, like somebody really being there to hold space for the individual and talk about what the experience was and the impact that has in their life and how that might lead to further change. Um, you know, separating those things out is unfortunate because it's it really is the combination of both the biochemical and the, and the therapeutic side of things. Yeah, I've, I've seen, um, I don't know if it's because our email chain or whatever, and all of a sudden now I'm being targeted for these type of things. But I, I was thinking about that and I'm like, at home, self-administered ketamine treatment, uh, if I take the stigma of the word ketamine off of it and just think about that, it just doesn't seem like that's, it's like you're missing the mark. The, it's not about taking the drug, it's about the outcome of the process of integrating the drug with the therapies mm -hmm. to help someone heal through what they're dealing with, yeah. which is, that's a very in, involved experience from all parties, from the therapist, the drug and the person. Mm -hmm. But the, the marketing blitz of like, do it at home by yourself. How, how, how do you do that and not either convince yourself it was successful when it wasn't, or then develop, I mean, is there even risk of, for example, dependency in that case? And is the risk for dependency higher in a at-home administered version than to a therapeutic version of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think a couple of points there. One is that, you know, for clients at Sage, for instance, you know, it is expensive to do the in-person treatments so after somebody's done a certain number of in-person treatments, what we offer, and if it feels appropriate for them, uh, if they have enough stable of enough home environment, somebody available, they feel like they can hold the container. We might let people do at-home sessions, but the way we set that up is, is that then instead of the therapist being there with you for the full three hours of treatment, you plan to do an integration session, like either at you know, later in the day, that same day or the next day for you to get to really talk about the experience so that that can help save some money for people while still kind of continuing to hold that strong therapeutic container. And we send people home with the sheet for how to, with the instructions for how to set up a safe container ritual, a little bit of a ritual container for themselves at home. Um, oh, there was another part to your question and I'm blinking on what it was right now. Uh, had to do maybe with the risks associated with at-home dependency and... Um, yeah, so, you know, generally what the re research has shown is that when ketamine's being done in a therapeutic context, the risk for dependency, like with street use, is pretty insignificant. 
you know, I don't know if there's any current research about the at-home administration compared to when people are doing in office, but I would guess that there probably is uh, increased likelihood for dependency. I think route of administration makes a huge difference too. Like most commonly the route of administration for home is sublingual and that requires people holding the ketamine in their mouth for 15 minutes without swallowing their saliva and it tastes pretty awful. That's the, uh, that's the clinical recommendation for that. Okay. Yeah. That's versus people are probably just crushing it up or like yeah, eating it, right? Getting nasal spray or powder and snorting it. Like there's not a whole lot of barrier <laughs> to, to that. It's not a whole process. <laughs> that also just uh, conceptually to me, the idea of someone doing a line of ketamine for their therapy session seems off. <laughs> totally. You can get it as a nasal spray and saline solution, which is often used in like chronic pain and stuff. Yeah, that's more respectful. Yeah, it's a little more respectful. But even with that, you know, the, the barrier isn't there as much. So I do get a little bit more concerned around clients having nasal spray for at-home use, at least. So is with ketamine is it just, it just feels like um practices like sage like yourself you're up against an interesting challenge in that you're truly invested in the well-being of the person coming to you and you use ketamine in the process because it's the best available tool to help them get to where they want to go mm-hmm but your concern lies with the person like it's truly to get them healed and when i hear people talk about ketamine or or when i hear people talk about ketamine therapy it doesn't really feel like it's originating from that space it feels like it's talked about like a drug Mm -hmm. and now with these at home self-administered i can only imagine on the other side of that coin right it's a some investors or people with some money got an idea and they found a way to market it and they want to get when you're trying to get a good return you want to get it to as many people's hands as possible but it seems like that is the biggest risk with the uh like respect of the practice that could diminish how people perceive it so if too many people get their hands on this and administer it poorly for example or carelessly and develop some sort of dependency or, or, or bad relationship with it, then in essence tarnishes all the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So is that something that you at Sage and your team and other physicians talk about or of, as how to like hold the integrity of what you're doing, despite how it may be perceived or distributed throughout society? Yeah, we definitely let clients know up front what our treatment protocol is like and what their philosophy is. So there's definitely a time and space where I think it can be useful to go through like kind of like the standard course of treatment in the kind of more straight biomedical framework is usually doing a series of IV infusions of six over like a two to three week period of time. So people are doing two to three sessions. Um, and it's usually over an hour and it's usually a low dose. So people are, are getting altered, but not super altered. And typically there isn't like a therapist in the room. People are going to like a pre-op room or, um, 
yeah, it's pretty clinical feeling. And, you know, when somebody's having really highly ruminative suicidality and they're needing a really quick course of treatment to help decrease the suicidal thoughts, that might be totally appropriate. Now, ideally they have a therapist available, but you can't always have a therapist available um, on a two to three times a week basis, like people's right. space in their schedule. But I think the thing that sets SAGE out differently is that, you know, if somebody's needing that higher level of care, we'll refer them out. And otherwise we're really moving at the pace of what the client is needing. So we don't have, it's, you know, people, we can't tell people right off the bat, you're going to do this many sessions over this period of time, because really what we want to do is we want to do a session, have a follow-up therapy session or two, see what they're at, seeing what sort of support they need, and then moving into the next session after that. So it can really vary from person to person, because again, you know, they might need some extra therapy sessions in between or be building more of the rapport with the therapist so that they feel safe and ready to go to a higher dosage in the next round. And, and that can really vary quite a bit from between patients. Can, can you speak a little bit to the experience of what these doses are like for an individual? I, um, I guess this is, I should put some parameters on it. Uh, let's just say for someone who is coming in with uh, feelings of depression, for example, what's kind of the, the personal experience on the dosage mm -hmm. from maybe that more entry-level space to some of the higher, uh, more focused and intense doses for them? Yeah. So, you know, the, some of the literature says to get a stronger antidepressant effect, um, it's best to have high dose sessions. So it's kind of that combination of therapy and getting people into that trans, more transpersonal dosage range. Now, I've found that for some people, they don't actually need to get into that like fully dissociative psychedelic space for them to have a strong antidepressant effect. But um, so what, how we handle it is, you know, it's always a titration process. So you start with a low dose and you make your way up. And we always start with sublingual ketamine because the, the onset is a lot slower versus when you're doing intermuscular injections. So we do intermuscular injections and we do sublingual. IV requires a bit more just um, equipment and monitoring. Right. And so it's more to do in an outpatient setting. So... We're always starting with low dose sublingual, which is about 50 to 100 milligrams. And then each session, depending on how the person tolerates it, you go up. So we call that low dose range, the psycholytic dose range. So that's more gonna be um, psycholytic is meaning like enhancing the therapy. So it helps break down some of the, the walls that might be up so that the person can feel more open to speaking to the psychotherapeutic process that they're already in. And then as you start to increase the dosage, you start to, people get, start to get into more of like a dreamy space around 150, 200 milligrams. And then getting to 200 milligrams, 300 milligrams is where more that dissociative psychedelic dose range happens. And then again, then there's kind of a transition point if it feels appropriate for the person. 
some people come in requesting it, but it's usually not until after a couple of oral ketamine experiences that will offer the IM injections, just because since the, on, the onset is so rapid, the intensity level is a lot higher and the level of disorientation can be a lot higher. So we wanna see how people are responding before doing an IM injection. And are there, with those incrementally more intense doses, um, what are the risk factors associated with that for the person? Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm sure, you know, obviously you monitor vitals and heart rate, blood pressure, things like that. But as far as, far as psychological risk, it, are there intense freakouts? Kind of what's like the spectrum of things that can happen if something were to go wrong? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, first I just want to speak to also that you know, we move up as feels appropriate for the person. Some people, a lot of times, again, because of what's spoken about in the media, they're like, okay, I want to get to that high dose IM experience. <laughs> and then say we make our way up to that high dose IM experience and people are like, all right, can we actually... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Where's the off button? Yeah, most yeah. people end up being like, I think I was actually good at the like moderate dose range. I don't actually right. need to go for that. I'm glad I did it. But uh, yeah. <laughs> that's not where we needed to go ongoingly. Um, and then, in terms of worst case scenario, with you know, ketamine is used. So you know, one of the reasons why it hit so much popularity is because it can be used so safely in the anest- like anesthesia setting. So like, I think mm. it was during the Vietnam War soldiers were sent out into the field with ketamine instead of opiates because you don't need to track. It doesn't cause respiratory depression. So if somebody got injured in the field, you could give them ketamine while you're transporting them to the hospital. They'd be safe. They'd be safe versus if you give them a shot of morphine, then you're transporting them, they're injured, and you have to make sure that their respiratory rate isn't going down. Right. and then it's used in, for kids for conscious sedation because they have such little airways in the emergency room all the time so that you can you know reset a broken bone or whatever it may be. So you know there have been a couple of incidences. You know, I, I think several years ago there was a report that came out about a, I think a, a young man that was super agitated. So the paramedics actually used ketamine to sedate him, and they used a really high dose like an anesthetic dose, like 500 milligrams IM or something, and and the kid ended up going into cardiac arrest. So in the high dosage range, you do have to be concerned about um, really highly elevated blood pressure. If people have a history of cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, you have to be concerned about that and monitoring that. Now, the psychedelic dose range is about a fifth to a tenth of what the anesthetic dose range is. So even at the highest psychedelic dosages that you use, um, you know, you're still needing to monitor blood pressure, make sure that somebody doesn't have significant history of cardiovascular disease, but it's not as like tremendously significant concern. Uh, And then in terms of more of like psychological side effects, you know, you have to be mindful if people have a significant psychiatric history of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, it may not be appropriate because that state of, you know, 
altered consciousness can lead to a more disorganized or fragmented ego structure afterwards. Um, it's usually not as appropriate for people who have those higher level psychiatric disorders. There are rare circumstances in which if the person is say stabilized in a mood stabilizer or an antipsychotic um, that you can, you know, it is often treated for used in people with bipolar disorder as well to treat the depressive side of things. But um, you wanna make sure that the, the mania is being stabilized before giving the ketamine so that uh, you don't accidentally throw somebody into a more disorganized state or manic episode. Wow, it, it, it listening to you talk, just it would make me want to stay further and further away from some sort of at-home administered type thing because of the, just like the progressions of care that you talk about, that you kind of have the A, B, C, and then if D, then E and F situation yeah. all figured out. And I, I feel like those are not things that you, especially if you're actually trying to, I guess someone getting an at-home ketamine treatment thing to do ketamine is one thing. Someone who's actually trying to get to a better end result or, or solve a trauma. I would want all the things that you talked about kind of at my disposal via a professional than trying to solve for it on the spot when it's happening. That sounds terrifying, especially given the, the pre-conceived like possibilities of what they could happen given certain other underlying elements like that's really interesting with the with these evolutions in in the progression and getting up towards those what you call the psychedelic dose right is um one fifth you said of the dose of an anesthetic mm -hmm. so when you're when uh, a patient is taking that type of dose one do they have to be uh battling a certain psychological disorder beforehand like is that dose reserved really for people with depression with bipolar disorder or with like a specific type of trauma maybe that trauma it doesn't lead to depression but it's something that they haven't like dealt with yet in their life mm -hmm. where do those doses fall on the treatment to specific issues mm -hmm. so two things i'll speak to that in just a second but just backing up to something that you just commented on you know, our recommendation when people do do at home sessions is they not do a dosage higher than what they've done in office with one of the therapists before. So they have a sense of how their body responds to that dosage and they've done it a couple of times as well as having somebody there available with them. Now, in terms of, um, oh geez, I distracted myself. Your question there was- It was about the- the referral of the psychedelic level dose to specific pre-existing psychological disorders. So ketamine use for mental health is considered off-label use. So in order to use a medication for off-label use, meaning that the clinical research has proven for it to be useful for anesthesia, there haven't necessarily there, have, there has been one FDA trial for Spravato, which is the intranasal spray, um, which doesn't come in a generic form and it's quite exper ex expensive compared to generic ketamine, which is very, very cheap. So generic ketamine is still off-label use. There's a couple of things that need to happen in order for that to be used in the mental health setting. One is that there needs to be enough essentially 
peer evidence and support for that treatment. So there's enough people that other psychiatrists, mental health care providers that have published or written literature reviews or various things in the community saying it can be useful for, you know, um, refractory depression and suicidality and anxiety and trauma. Um, and then you also have to prove that the patient has had other failed forms of treatment. So they've tried traditional approaches, but they haven't been sufficient in helping that patient meet their treatment goals. So that can be anything from failed forms of therapy to trying two or three different types of antidepressant medications. It really can vary, but you need to be able to document those things before, you know, in terms of like covering yourself legally within clinical practice, right. we want to administer it. That makes sense. So I feel like they're just curious about wanting to explore their consciousness and right. Um, it's not appropriate in the clinical setting. Now, I think anybody who's showing up to a clinical setting and they're like, I have a totally perfect mental health history. <laughs> I want to like sit down and have a conversation with them and be like, okay, you might not have had like significant stressors compared to like world hunger and, and right. <laughs> emotional but okay but this is a, but what else is going on here this is a really good point because i feel like a lot of the the elements in place are to disparage people from recreationally doing ketamine in a clinical setting to be like okay i really want to do ketamine but i don't want to get caught or in trouble i know what i'll do i'm going to go to a ketamine treatment center and oh my you know my parents divorced blah 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 and try and like get in there to do it in a safe environment but that's also uh not to discredit that there are benefits right to its use for people mm -hmm. so if someone let's say let's step out of the clinical setting for a second and say that someone that for the same reason that people would uh go backpacking and take mushrooms they want to explore their psyche and they want to do that using ketamine. What do you say to someone like that? Is it kind of like, uh, Hey, well, it's illegal. Don't do it. Or do you respect the properties within the drug as being powerful also for people that maybe not are, are not dealing with something extremely traumatic or, or a diagnosed psychological disorder? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so John Hopkins many years ago, I think Bob Jesse encouraged this study with psilocybin mushrooms, encouraged doing this study with healthy normals and how it's really important to show that it's not just about treating diagnosable disorders, that there can be therapeutic benefits for, you know, everybody and anybody for whom it's appropriate. I wouldn't say psychedelics are appropriate for everybody, so I want to make sure that I make that clear. <laughs> Um, I think you need to have a calling, a desire for them. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah, there's so much to learn. Just like, you know, having a healthy diet and exercising isn't just to treat diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Exactly. If you want to take care of yourself. Um, you know, obviously you, you take good care of yourself. Or you're a trainer. So um, 
I think that's really important. You know, what we can do in the clinical setting, of course, we're in a little bit of a bind. So I like, I think in some of my bios somewhere, you'll see that like, I consider myself both like a clinician and an activist. And so right. I'm very much in support, for instance, you know, I think that the whole decrim movement has its their various approaches and things, but as a whole, do I believe in decriminalization if it's held in the right um, context? I would say I am, um, and that not everything needs to be within just the clinical scope, and that people should be able to have access to these various modalities, even if they don't have a DSM diagnosis of major depressive disorder or PTSD. You know, uh, we can't necessarily take those folks in our practice, but one of the things that I do offer is say integration support. So if somebody's wanting to go out and experience things on their own, I can't necessarily guide them as to where or how to access, but I can, you know, you know, I can talk to them about set and setting. I can talk to them about when they come back and they want to talk about their experience looking at the symbology of some of the visionary states that they had and might how some of those might be metaphors for things that apply to their life or just what to do with the insights that maybe have arisen about their relationship dynamics with their parents and loved ones or otherwise so i still can then hold a framework for people who are wanting to hold it for um other forms of kind of transformational work or just curiosity and consciousness exploration too well i really like what you said about the the food thing like you don't have to get diagnosed to have a healthy diet to you know fend off diabetes coronary artery disease and that's so true because i if i go back to the therapy example so i've been to therapy with a psychologist a couple times in my life for different reasons one was more like sport related as an athlete where i like needed to solve some things in my personal life that were distracting me as an athlete. And so that was a really profound experience in getting me like dialed back in, in an athletic setting. Um, and then later in life, I had seen a therapist to talk about things about my parents' divorce that when I was 16, I just kind of like dusted under the rug. I didn't care. It was for me, it was cool at the time. I had two different houses. I could stay out later. It was easier to hang out with my friends. It was in the moment, a positive experience. As I got older, uh, it became a more traumatic experience and I would find myself dwelling on it, but I didn't know why. And so I went and saw a therapist and there were some really cool insights that I got from that, that were not available to me prior to seeing that person. But from the outside, nothing was wrong, right? Like I wasn't, no relationships in my life were suffering. I wasn't, uh, performing poorly at my job. I didn't have issues with my finances. There was no things on the checklist of like, are you messed up that would have checked? Yet going and doing that was extremely important. And in hindsight, it was instrumental in a shift that then happened in my life. So I think about that and I'm like, even I go, I go back to this, like the psilocybin experience thing, very positive experience. To your point, I think it's important for people to like, <laughs> it's not for everyone, you know, you're like, you should, you need to one, want to do it before you do it. But to do that in a clinical setting seems incredible. Like I, I would love to do that. I feel like the combination of uh, professional clinical therapy and conscious altering 
naturally occurring substances could be extremely beneficial to someone in any capacity. It would be that your personal life, your professional life, uh, maybe just the way that you look or view at the world. So how far off are we from a place where that can happen on uh, a phone call, for example, or, or like just me showing interest, but then also on that same question, how do you manage the risk there of it being abused and then developing, you know, the issues that then develop around the abuse of it? Like, how do we begin to integrate that into our society? It's a long, a long-winded question, but. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of different parts of it that I would love to speak to, one of which is, um, you know, I try to really tell people who are coming in more for integration, they're, they're kind of more curious in the exploratory side of things that it doesn't matter how much experience you have, how many times you've eaten mushrooms, how many ceremonies you've sat in. I personally hold the strong belief that having a therapist or a mentor, somebody that you're following up with these experiences with is absolutely essential. And if you think about more entheogenic cultures that are actively using plant medicines to work with like there are elders in the community you are you know talking about this amongst your peers and family all the time and so we need to start developing things that are appropriate for more you know the western context that provide that support and you know we've been speaking more to the clinical context which right now the framework is more one-on-one -on -one kind of psychotherapy but I do want to speak to the fact that I think community support is really important, which is one of the interesting things about the decrim movement. It's focused more on like, how do we have community around this? As well as thinking about, you know, um, from a perspective of different demographics are going to feel safer in a one-on-one -on -one clinical setting versus a more community or group-based setting for doing this healing work. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so either way, I think it's essential to have some amount of structure around it, whereas I think a lot of the younger generation and culture can kind of be like, oh, I just kind of want to go be a psychonaut and right. be more like do-it-yourself, DIY types. And I'm like, you know, there's something for that framework if you really want to hold these things, you know, and again, you'll hear me kind of combine the clinical with the more spiritual side of things. But if you hold this as like, in traditional cultures, these are sacraments. So like if you're holding it with this framework of staying committed to whatever practices and integration and support around it, then you're holding these medicines with a level of respect and reverence that they deserve. Um, so that's kind of one thing that I always kind of am on a bit of a soapbox on. Yeah, I think that's important, the re the respect aspect of it. And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, when you're like, you know, you're an 18-year-old kid and, and you're with your friends, you just want to be an idiot. Uh, the <laughs> You might have positive experiences, but the idea of it in a clinical setting just really seems, it seems unique, but it also seems the like the safety element. That, that was something that I always uh, struggled with personally. It's like, it's a big risk when you do things by yourself because you don't know where things are going to go. 
you have an idea of what you think. And a lot of times those are based on recommendations or advice from other people that are also not physicians that don't know what they're talking about it when it really boils down to it. And there's a fear element associated with the risk that you know you're undertaking. Mm -hmm. And having that fear present the whole time, that's an emotion that you're dealing with when you're going through this experience. And in some cases, maybe you're jockeying back and forth between the two. And it has an impact on, on what you're doing. I think the clinical aspect seems so inviting because of the safety that there's a, you know, a professional with me mm-hmm. who they know how much, they know when, they know why, and they know how. And then inside of all that is baked in this. They're also, they're, my best interest is in within them, you know, like they want to see me through this, get better, not just uh, see, laugh about it with me later kind of thing. And uh, that I think seems really, really special about it. It would be, um, so w- what do you do at, at Sage if you have people that have interest in doing something like that, but they're not, they don't ha- hold any of those um, diagnoses beforehand? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the options is that if it feels like, again, because I feel like all of us have something, whether or not we want are consciously aware of it or not. A lot of times what we'll tell people is, is, you know, right now you don't qualify for treatment, but you could start an individual therapy and see what emerges from there. And then if at some point in time it feels appropriate, we might be able to transition you into the ketamine work as well. So it is, I don't want to say it's totally ruled out. There are circumstances in which we can make exceptions for folks, but um, we kind of have to monitor them within the therapeutic process, you know, to be able to support it. Uh, clinically for them. That makes sense. It, it always blows my mind. I, I return to this thought so much. How destructive alcohol is just across the spectrum and how frequently destructive it is. And, you know, I've witnessed its destruction firsthand in my life, all over the place, yeah. uh, personally. And then if you expand that out to your community of acquaintances or, or people that you know, I mean, show me something more destructive, please. And uh, I will be surprised. And yet it is just, you know, you, you go sit on the beach in Santa Monica and there's banners tied to airplanes telling you to go party in Mexico and get drunk. Like imagine a world <laughs> where you're sitting on the beach in Venice and an airplane flies by and it's like, hey, have a therapeutically positive experience with a clinical yeah. you know, professional. I'm like, that we just we got that so backwards somehow uh, as a society, and now there's so much money behind um, the alcohol industry. But I I just I don't know that thought always pops in my head. I find it so funny that one is so reserved and closed off, yet <laughs> like empirically beneficial, and then one is hey have it whatever you want. It's like the biggest destructive thing in our our society. It's crazy. I. I- just recently was with my parents and I like to remind my mom because like you know alcohol is social so socially acceptable but I can promise you that nobody's really going to get on a bar fight if they took a bunch of mushrooms <laughs> oh, no. than if they pounded a bunch of beers <laughs> I know it's like what happens you like want to spend more time outside uh you treat people <laughs> you know it's yeah. like the list goes on and on um I want to be respectful of your time but I, I would love to get your 
your insight too on, and I feel like we're going to have to do another episode in the future because there's so much I want to talk about that we didn't get to, but I could talk with, forever on this. Yeah. <laughs> I love it with the, uh, with the popularity of ayahuasca. I, and I can only again, speak to like my experience here, but if the last 15 years, I would say I've heard about it more and more and more and more. And, and it transcends age groups from uh, there's people, you know, quite younger than me that I hear talk about it. Um, people around my parents' age, I hear it in conversation. I know people personally that have gone on experiences or they've traveled to Peru, they've done it domestically. Um, why do you think that that's grown in popularity? We'll, we'll just start there. And, and that way I won't cloud the questions, but um, what do you think led to the growth of ayahuasca as like a, something that people are willing to venture to go do? Mm -hmm. yeah you know I think there's a couple of things there you know I think if you take more of like a systems and ecological approach to the world I think people are feeling um a lot more awareness or it's in their awareness much more the ways in which things are out of balance and our relationship to nature is out of balance and how that impacts their sense of well-being and how they're interacting with the word world socially as well as environmentally. And so I think people are becoming increasingly more curious around spiritual experiences that bring them into more contact with that um, so that they can have a bigger benefit within themselves and within their community and more broadly. And another piece being is that our culture is becoming so increasingly more isolated. And mm -hmm. most of the ayahuasca work is done within a group context. And people yeah. are really, really starving for more communal experiences and more shared spiritual experiences, I think, within a community context as well, as people are kind of less interested in maybe more structured religion. They are still aware of how you know, there's, there have been plenty of studies out there, which I really appreciate showing how having a spiritual connection of some sort improves your overall health and well-being. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it, it spans the age range, you know, the generations, because I think the young folks are really aware of it. And then as people get older, they're, you know, in their end of life stages are approaching, they become more aware of the ways in which they want to be plugging in so that there can be that deeper sense of hope and connection. Right. Um, yeah. And then within that, yeah. how do you advise people to make mindful choices around the use of ayahuasca? Yeah. So this one's so tricky, you know, I think it's really important to make sure that you are going to a reputable person or a retreat center. So either somebody you know has been there before and you can talk to them directly or they have good recommendations. Um, making sure that there's a, the appropriate support structures. So if you're if you're traveling abroad, what's the you know safety? What's the transportation like? Mm -hmm. What sort of support do they have outside of just the the curanderos that are in curanderos that are holding the experience? But are there other folks that can kind of help bridge, especially for Westerners, the cosmological framework that maybe 
a traditional ayahuasca healer is holding in helping bridge to like the Western context to how you contextualize that experience. Um, as well as, you know, safety in this safety in this setting, I think taking care of the local community, like there's lots of ayahuasca retreat centers that are popping up, but are they actually doing a good job of making sure that they're not just kind of appropriating the traditions, but they're actually doing a good job of making sure that the traditions are being carried forward in a, in a thoughtful way, as well as offering employment at opportunities and some sort of reciprocity to the local communities that they're they're working in in a good way there's a lot of different as well as thinking about ecological aspects of you know how are they um harvesting the vine and the chacruna to make the actual ayahuasca brews so i think there's a lot of different levels of what you want to be thinking about that you know and if people are doing things more domestically there's a lot of what we you know what do we it's like drive through shamanism and where like, that's about what i'm getting at yeah yeah <laughs> and so you know i get it that there's healers that are coming from abroad and and i do think that there's an importance in kind of they're delegating tasks like there's certain things that the the healer can really show up for and they're there for in the ceremony but then who's part of the team so that if people are needing support you know, are they doing group integration the next day? Are people available to do individual or group sessions following the work so that people can continue to get the support or are people just kind of coming through doing the ceremony and then people are just left to their own devices? Like that's not a supportive enough structure. Right. Yeah, that was, I have been exposed to like a lot of that just because unfortunately I spend quite a bit of time on social media trying to, you know, market things podcasts and episodes and, and stuff like that. And it feels, I don't know how to describe it, but it just seems like if I'm thinking about a, a conscious shift, like I, if I'm after shifting my conscious understanding of the world and I want that to be a spiritual experience and a meaningful experience and hopefully a lasting experience with positive outcomes, getting that experience from another person who's like glued to their phone telling you about how enriched their being is it just seems off yeah like it's missing the mark and that that therein lies the proof that that's not actually the level that that person lives on mm -hmm. and so i wonder about the again just like the risks associated with that kind of thing because this is not uh, playground stuff you know it's yeah. life altering potentially and uh, to place that in the hands of someone who claims to be a professional in the area but isn't I can't imagine a bigger risk on like your psyche than that yeah I think that's huge and I think one of the things to differentiate between maybe ayahuasca and other psychedelics is that I really firmly hold the belief that like you want to go to a practitioner who has been sufficiently trained. And that's not just like, hey, I did one of the psychedelic assisted therapy programs for a year or two. Like people who are really holding the ayahuasca tradition and holding it well, they've apprenticed for a minimum of 10 right. years before they're even um, serving ayahuasca. And so 
really holding that like those are the types of people that you're wanting to sit with and not just somebody who's you know familiar with it and decided that they can just sing really beautifully and start <laughs> like there's so much of that especially in california yeah. and, so. and again also like when you see people posting things like crazy on social media for me it's like you know, same thing was like when somebody's advertising themselves and they're like, I'm a psychedelic assisted therapy therapist. It's like my question that comes back to them is often like, and this kind of ties back to one of the things that I feel grateful for, for that experience from 10 years ago, which is like, it taught me a tremendous amount, like of humbleness and humility. Mm -hmm. And so when people are advertising themselves there's again a certain level of respect and reverence that you want to see that people have in deep relationship to these medicines before they're offering it to other people right and when you see people advertising in that level my real question is is like what is your relationship to that medicine like do you actually have that deeply respectful relationship because otherwise i don't think the plants necessarily want to be <laughs> out there advertising that's not really this sort of vibe that they give off. Um, yes. So I'm, I'm so glad we're on the same uh, on the same page. I mean, it it breaks my heart when we get to the end of the hour and a half because it goes by so fast, and there's still, like I said, so much I want to talk to you about. I'm about to read this book called The Immortality Key, mm -hmm. and I'm sure I'm going to have a trillion questions. So I would love to do another episode uh, where maybe we can dive even a little bit deeper into some of this stuff. It's been on my reading list, so maybe it'll be a good motivation for me to read it too. Book club. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Awesome. Yes. Everyone is welcome to join. Um, awesome. Well, there will be in the show notes everything about Sage, how people can find you, um, your practice to reach out to you personally. And then uh, we 100% will do this again in the future. And thank you so much. You've been listening to the Main Idea Podcast. Profiling pros within the health, wellness, and sports industries. It's real and raw discussions about how real people lean on themselves to accomplish great things. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We know we had fun. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us on social media. Till next time, this is the Main Idea Podcast. Listen. Listen. Learn. Learn. Evolve. Evolve.